0: We want to say to more of the One Team Gov audience, maybe that's what they're missing. Maybe it's a new way of collaborating across boundaries.
1: Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we have an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie
2: And I'm Kamala, and today we are talking with Dawn Duhaney, Data Partnerships Manager at The Wellcome Trust. Welcome, Dawn.
0: Thanks for having me. Really happy to be part of your podcast.
2: Awesome. We heard on the grapevine that you turned up to the first ever One Team Gov breakfast, making you the OG OTG in our eyes.
0: (laughs) What attracted you to One Team Gov so early? I saw the advert for the OG One Team Gov event. When I was new to the civil service, I joined the government digital service at the end of 2016. I knew a few people, but I didn't really know many people in the space. And I saw the One Team Government posted in Slack. And I just thought it would be a good way to meet more people in the digital community. Because I'd come from data, I'd worked at the Open Data Institute beforehand. I went along to it and I met some amazing people. And all I can say is just the energy I felt after leaving that event. I felt so motivated and so happy to get on with this digital data and tech agenda. It was brilliant. I may not remember all of the conversations, all of the session ideas, but I definitely remember how I felt after I left that event and I felt energised and I felt like I was part of a community that are making moves and doing fantastic things. So it was a really brilliant event. And I'm really happy to see that that's continued through the breakfast and the global event also if it can make civil servants across the country feel how I felt after leaving that event, then that's brilliant.
2: That's so good to hear. A lot of people have talked about that feeling that they feel after One Team government events of the sort of hairs standing up on their skin. Talking about civil service and government, we like to talk about how people ended up in the civil service. So what was your origin story? How did you end up in government?
0: I was a classic liberal arts graduate. So I studied English literature, And then I did a master's in public policy. I always wanted to work in government in some way, but I definitely fell into data through government. When I was a student, I think I was probably a bit naive. I was interested in evidence-based policy, and it was around the same time as the What Work Centres were bringing up, which were designed to kind of support policy evaluation and analyse which policies are being most effective and encouraging them and stopping things. And also the behavioural insights work was beginning to kick off. In my mind, I thought it was evidence to support decisions, but I guess what I was really interested in was data. And after I did my dissertation, I ended up working at the Open Data Institute for about two and a half years. And that's kind of how I fell down the data rabbit hole. <laughs> Very few people I know who work in the data and government space set out to do that. There's a data scientist that I've worked with, and he was a tree surgeon and a survival expert before he moved into data and government. I rarely meet people who knew that they were going to do this. After I finished Master's in Public Policy, I started working at the Open Data Institute in the international development team. I worked on a programme that was designed to support governments around the world to become more open, to use open source tools and to release more open data. It taught me a lot about government. I met some brilliant civil servants around the world have immense drive and vision. And I think the UK should look more globally when we're looking for ideas. It also taught me that in terms of digital data and technology, lots of people in governments around the world are facing similar challenges. The dressing around it is different, but the challenges are the same. It also taught me that digital data and technology is essentially about culture change. And culture change is incredibly difficult, even though we've moved forward quite quickly and there are some great teams and great civil servants around the world, it is very difficult. I wanted to be like the civil servants I met at the ODI from around the world. I wanted to be the ones trying to drive change within government instead of being outside helping. That job at the Open Data Institute also taught me about the importance of community and networks. Just how important peer groups were and connecting with people. I found that often digital and data teams in some departments, digital and data teams can be quite isolated really showed to me the importance of community and networks in getting things done and making people feel supported in order to have that energy to create change.
2: You talked about how you saw these civil servants and you were really keen to be one of them and to instigate change from the inside. When you moved into government, did you find that there were any major differences between working for the Open Data Institute and working from inside government?
0: I knew it was difficult to create change, particularly around data. I actually co-wrote a report, which was Open Data, How to Bring About Change, where we interviewed lots of civil servants and got them to reflect on their lessons learned from open data initiatives. Then I got into government and I was like, actually, yes, this is really difficult. (laughs) It kind of just hammered home to me how actually it's not about technology, it's about people. And it's about hearts and minds and In my experience with data, people don't want to share data because they feel afraid that the quality isn't to the right standard and they may be caught out or they're worried they may be exposed. And it's all about how people feel rather than the data itself. I met some great people working in the public sector, working at the Government Digital Service and at the Department for Culture, Media and Sport. I really think that in government, People are working at the heart of some key issues in key areas in data, so ethics, privacy. Because of the remit in government, you get the opportunity to work on some really knotty problems and work out how to make services better for people. A colleague of mine led the second version of the Data Science Ethical Framework, which was released by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport a few months ago. As many people know, ethics is on the agenda massively in terms of artificial intelligence, machine learning and data science. And the tool that was created by DCMS is actually, in some ways, ahead of the thinking in the private sector, because in government, you have to think about user needs so much. In the data world, it's led some really interesting conversations and some really great projects have come from it. Also in government, if you can get the projects right, you can create a lot of change. It may be difficult, but once it lands, it can be brilliant.
2: Speaking of really great projects that we've seen that you've been involved with from our research, we saw that you helped set up one of the first data science accelerators as part of your work in GDS. Can you tell us a bit about that and what came out of that?
0: Again, going to the idea that data is about culture change rather than technical change. We found that at GDS, we had responsibility for the data science community. Data scientists across government and we'd do meetups once a quarter to get these people together because often they'd be the only data scientist or one of two or three data scientists in a very analytical heavy department and they were using slightly different tools and working on different types of projects. So the idea is to bring them together. What we found was that there was often a recruitment and retention challenge. Often people say that data scientists are unicorns. Actually in the private sector, Data scientists can earn quite high salaries, and I don't think the public sector will ever be able to keep up with the pace of the private sector in terms of salaries. The idea behind the data science accelerator was to upskill people who have the core skills for data science. We often say that data science is a mix of maths, coding skills, and subject matter expertise. So, someone could be working in the Department for Transport and be a statistician and have the great math skills, know about the subject area. But all they're missing then are the coding skills on top to be in that level of being pushed up to a data scientist. So the idea behind the Data Science Accelerator is to pair people with great potential, analysts and statisticians, with experienced data scientists together, put them on a 12-week program where they work together on a project of real business value. And that was really successful. And last count, over a 100 people went through the program and many people were promoted up to data science roles. Also, we won a Future Policy Award for the Data Science Accelerator, which was brilliant. It's all about building communities and increasing capability. And it wasn't just something that GDS led on. It was something that we led in partnership with a couple of other organisations. The team realised that because many statisticians become data scientists, there was a need to collaborate with that profession. We partnered with ONS, Office for National Statistics. They have a data science campus based in Newport. And we also partnered with the Government Office for Science to run this programme. It was also spread across the UK, so it wasn't just London-centric. There are accelerator hubs in Newcastle, Wales, Manchester, Bristol. The programs across the UK and it's still running. It's going really well.
2: That sounds really, really cool. Congratulations on that award. It sounds definitely well-merited. Spoiler alert from the introduction, you have obviously left government now and you're now working for the Wellcome Trust. Can you tell us a bit about the Wellcome Trust and why you decided to move there?
0: My role at the Wellcome Trust, I'm the data partnerships manager and a bit of background. The Wellcome Trust is a global charitable organisation designed to improve health. And they're quite a well-funded organisation and they give lots of grants to academic institutions and fund scientific breakthroughs. They're quite a large organisation. They have lots of data internally. One thing that they're looking at is how they can make better use of data, how they can analyse information about the grants that they give, or they can track where the Wellcome Trust has been mentioned in policy documents and its influence. And there's a great team of data scientists in the data lab that are working on that. And externally, the Wellcome Trust is looking at how hospitals and other organisations can make better use of data and encourage data sharing. They're exploring an area of research called data for science and health, and that's to encourage trust, data sharing, and adoption of data ethics in the data and health sector more broadly. And I really think that health is a sector which is so interesting. I mean, we have Google DeepMind. Matthew Hancock is the Minister of State for Department for Health and Social Care. And I feel like technology has such a, an opportunity to transform the health sector. At the same time, privacy and ethics are keys. There are some knotty challenges and there's lots of opportunity and that's the type of environment I like to work in. So I'm really excited for the challenge.
1: Awesome. Well, it sounds like you've already got a few things in mind for your time with the Welcome Trust, which is great. There's lots of jargon in this data rabbit hole like you described. Can you help our listeners to explain a little what open data means and why it's useful?
0: When I was at the ODI, they created a really nice one-liner, which is that open data is data that anyone can access, use, or share. And actually, Carly, to your point about jargon, at the Government Digital Service, I led a programme of work which was around data literacy, getting non-technical civil servants. When I mean non-technical, I mean policy operations, some digital teams that don't really engage with data that often. To understand the potential that data has to transform their work and support them. In my experience in working in the sector for four or so years, I've seen waves of buzzwords, artificial intelligence, machine learning, algorithms, all of these things. There is a certain amount of bamboozling that can happen. Maybe someone senior sees an article and says, This is the thing we need in our organization, without a real understanding of what that actually means. For instance, data scientists are seen as these unicorns that can do magical things and they hide into an organisation and they themselves become frustrated because their remit and their objectives are not clear. So the idea behind the data literacy programme is to improve conversations between technical data specialists and non-technical members of staff. Looking back, Literacy was the incorrect word because often when people hear data literacy they think of people doing the statistical analysis themselves or you know doing the maths and the coding themselves. But actually, what we wanted to do was to encourage conversations between the non-technical and technical people. Another reflection from the civil service is that there is a language barrier. That language barrier does lead to a lack of collaboration. I actually read a blog from FutureGov recently. And they were talking about language barriers between digital teams and non-digital teams. I think they'd worked in a local council. And they were saying that some people may think the words show and tell remind them of like a year two teachers event. But if you replace it with an open project review, it's the same thing, but it's in a language that they can understand. And that is where a lot of data projects fall down. And what we actually did as part of the data literacy program was to almost create a cheat sheet of if you had an idea for a data project, this is what a data scientist or a technical person would want to know. Who are the users? Who is this project going to affect? What is the problem we are going to solve? Sometimes people think that data science is a magic bullet. It's about demystifying a lot of the jargon around this. People also think that data is something which is scary and they don't want to engage with because it's technical. But all data really is, is information. And all information helps us do is make better decisions. That's what we were trying to get with the data literacy program. It's myth busting. Maybe you don't need a machine learning algorithm. Maybe you just need to speak with a statistician to help you understand patterns in the numbers.
1: That actually leads us perfectly on to where we're going to go next. You said that you love to work in this kind of space of building trust and culture around the use of data talked about things like using language that people can understand. And I think that's really, really important. It's definitely been one of the learnings probably of the whole digital data technology movement in government. We learned quickly that we could alienate people by using terms they didn't understand. Do you have any examples of policy spaces or domains that you've worked with that have managed to use data and build up their skills to make better decisions?
0: The data science team at the Department for Transport, have been collaborating with policy teams. Their goal was to make it easier for policy teams to analyse consultation responses. A policy team may have a public consultation response and they have lots of information coming back. The Department for Transport were able to use a method called natural language processing to analyse several thousand consultation responses and bring out what the sentiment was around the topics For instance, people want buses to come four times an hour instead of twice an hour. And they're able to build a tool that analysed responses and brought out the key analysis within 10 hours. And that was something that would take people days, weeks to go through. To get to that point where they were able to build a tool that worked effectively took quite a long time. They wrote a blog about the collaboration that was required. It wasn't like the policy team said, we need this to be a faster process. Go do something for us. And they built something that was the right the first time. It was a process of a lot of back and forth and collaboration that got them to this point. That's something that digital teams understand, but maybe traditional policy teams. <laughs> I've been part of a policy team, so I know what it's like. It's not the case of I need numbers, someone give me these numbers now. It's more of an iterative process. Because so many data scientists are part of stats professions, or they're operational researchers, they're statisticians. They are from professions where it is more of a transactional process. Data science is a culture. Even though it does build upon maths and stats, the way in which they get to decisions is different. It's about working in the open and making things reproducible and using GitHub and collaboration. And the data science mindset is different to the mindset that you have if you're in a traditional statistical department.
1: That example you gave where once they'd built the tool, they were able to process the data in 10 hours where it would have taken much longer. We've probably all seen those examples where things like that have been spoken about and people haven't necessarily explained or understood that context with iterative development. And that's where some of those myths around we will just AI this or we will just data science this and it will be better come from because there's that lack of understanding. Are there any other common pitfalls you see repeated over and over again when organisations try to do this but don't quite hit the mark?
0: Data sharing is a big challenge in government. There are some brilliant minds that are working on how to encourage better data sharing across government because data is very siloed. If we were able to share data more effectively, things could be way more effective. In my old job, I saw lots of projects that didn't get off the ground Great idea, great user need, great problem to be solved. But the lack of interoperability with the data was a massive blocker. That's often for cultural reasons rather than anything particularly wrong with the data itself. We saw from
2: our research that one of your many accolades was that you were listed on the Where Are the Faces initiative, which I thought was absolutely awesome. Do you think you could tell our listeners a bit more about what that initiative was and what it was trying to do?
0: The Where Are The Faces initiative was set up by a brilliant woman called Deborah Okenla. She works at Google now in their startup campus team. She has a history of working with startups. She wanted to know where are the faces of the black women in the UK working in the tech scene because there's a perception that technology is full of male, white bros in a way. And there are black women doing great work, but they're not seen in the sector as much. She was brilliant and she put together a list of black women in the data and technology scene in the UK. Since then, she's built a whole community of people in this sector. And actually from that, there have been some other great events. There's something called Afro Tech Fest that happened this January. They're going to do another one. And that was a celebration of being black and British and in tech. It's so important, particularly in this scene, working in government. It's essential that the people who are building the tools are reflective of society. As I said, in the data world, people are tackling really interesting problems and really important problems around ethics and bias. If the workforce is not reflective of society, we're not going to be able to cancel out the bias that exists. When I worked at GDS, the government digital service, they really did make strides to do something about diversity and the lack of diversity when I started at GDS. They mandated gender mix and BAME mix panels. That really made a difference because Everyone has biases. You cannot remove bias from a person. However, you need to balance that out. In a recruitment scenario, people do hire people that are like them. The challenge is how do we mitigate for that? And like I said, you can't make people drones, you can't make people robots, but you can have a diverse mix of people interviewing a person to make things fairer in the sector.
2: I saw that you went to Afrotech and I was just so jealous. Oh my God, I would love to go to that. I thought about flying back from New Zealand, but I thought that ticket might be a bit expensive. You touched there a bit on data and biases. And I suppose as someone who is a minority working in the tech space, I worry that data can be perceived as neutral and really fair because that's often what numbers do to people when they're presented with them. You think, oh, that seems very fair. But actually, if you just scratch a little bit below the surface... It's an aggregation of a lot of biases and often racist views held by society. Is that something you worry about? And have you seen anywhere that's done good work to try and tackle that?
0: There are lots of examples in the US where in the justice system, people are building algorithms or facial recognition software, which is biased against people of colour. I've worked in the sector for a little while. And in my experience, a lot of the data science projects, AI and machine learning has been about efficiency rather than to profile people or using personal data. But that does exist. I am aware of projects in the US where they're using data in the criminal justice system and it's a biased system. The data is implicitly biased and the algorithms that they choose only exemplify that and they don't minimise that. It is a difficult challenge because as we know, what you get from an algorithm or machine learning program, it's only as good as the data that you put in. I'm a non tech technical person, so I've never studied maths or data science or anything. It's not just the responsibility of a data scientist. You have a multidisciplinary team designers, user researchers, you have product managers who are able to share the responsibility and people that can have a different perspective on the project. Because even though we talk about ethics and AI and ethics and data, I still am not convinced that people really know where the responsibility for ethics and data sits. I mean, does it sit with a data scientist? Does it sit with the CEO? Does it sit with a product manager? Who is ultimately responsible for making sure a product or a project is ethical? I'm not really convinced that we know where that is. There are some really brilliant people who are out there working on this. I mentioned the data science ethical framework that was published by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport DCMS. ODI have a data ethics canvas that they published. the Ada Lovelace Institute has recently been created to look at this work, and also dot everyone are doing a lot of work around ethical tech so there are lots of great minds thinking about this. I do believe we need to break away from data scientists being an all knowing all seeing unicorn. We need to think about this as more of a cohesive ecosystem and understand the people that are needed to make sure that projects are ethical, they're meeting user needs and We're getting the best from the new technology that we have.
1: Absolutely. That's been a little bit of a theme of our podcast, actually, in terms of who's responsible for making sure that products are ethical. And what we found is that we all feel a level of responsibility and it's about how we come together around that and have a little bit more of a strategic view on it. Some of the organizations that you mentioned there have absolutely been on our wish list of people to chat to because they're doing such awesome work. For me, particularly, the data ethics framework, the ODI, is brilliant. One of my absolute favorite people, Amanda Smith, was involved in that as well. Bonus points for mentioning that. We've seen from your Twitter profile that your three top interests are networks, data, and Beyonce. And we really wanted to know which of those three things would be your favorite if you absolutely had to choose.
0: Well, obviously, Beyonce. I'm a fully paid up member of the Beehive. (laughs) I saw her on the run tour. I say it's the Beyonce show with Jay-Z, not Jay-Z and Beyonce, Beyonce with Jay-Z. We were so close to her. It was a magical experience. Also, me and a few of my friends, we went to the Lemonade tour in 2016. She's just brilliant. I think she's such an inspiration. And we've all seen her journey from the 90s when she was in Destiny's Child with Tina's clothes and being brilliant then. And now we've just seen her flourish into this superstar not popularising feminism, but bringing it to a new audience. I know sometimes she gets a bit of stick for people saying feminism is a bit of a consumerist label at the moment, but I genuinely think that she's a brilliant icon and I love her.
2: I have to say that when I found out we were going to interview you, I had to really hold back from putting an entire Beyonce section into this interview because maybe may not be as relevant for our entire One Team Gov audience. I also went to the Lemonade tour When she does the bit about feminism and the word feminist comes up, I've never heard a bigger scream for feminism in my entire life. That says it (laughs) all.
0: Maybe we should bring Beyonce to more of the One Team Gov audience. Maybe that's what they're missing. Maybe it's a new way of collaborating across boundaries.
1: Well, Beyonce can do anything. So if she could bring people together, let's do it. (laughs) The Bay Data Institute, how about that?
0: Love it. I'm going to trademark it. Make it open source, what am I saying? (laughs)
1: Yeah, don't hold all that power. That would be very anti-Beyonce. We love to ask the people that we speak to for some recommendations so that we can expand people's minds and get them reading and learning different things. Could you recommend a Twitter account that would be good for us to follow?
0: Yes, so we mentioned her earlier, Deborah Okenla. She is a brilliant community builder. As we discussed, she wrote Where Are The Faces blog. And she's also a founder of a community called Your Startup, Your Story and it's for founders, developers, creatives, investors, people in the digital industry of black, Asian minority, ethnic background who are making a difference. She's a brilliant community builder, public speaker. She's fab. Everyone should follow her. And apart from this one, of course,
1: any podcasts you listen to?
0: So my favourite podcast is actually The Guilty Feminist. I listen to it every Monday on the tube and also when I'm making dinner at home. It's a fun take on what it's like to be a feminist in 2018 and the hypocrisies that undermine our goals as feminists. It's from a lady called Deborah Fontes White, and it's brilliant. It's also introduced me to loads of great female comedians, so I think they're great.
1: That's wicked. I actually went to one of the recordings of The Guilty Feminist and me and my mates who I was with probably laughed more loudly than we ever have before, so much so that we actually made it onto the background noise of the cut. (laughs) And a book that you could recommend?
0: A book that I'm reading currently that I think is brilliant is Made by Humans by Ellen Broad. We've been talking a lot about data, data science, AI. That book basically asking the questions who is designing AI and how is their worldview shaping our future? Talking about how humans are ultimately making the decisions about how AI is deployed in our world, who benefits from that and who gets hurt. It's brilliant.
1: That sounds great. I think I saw an interview with her on the BBC and it was really, really fascinating. So I'll definitely check that out. And finally, a charity or a social enterprise that our listeners could support? I've chosen
0: an organisation called the Girls Network. Their mission is to inspire and empower girls from the least advantaged communities across the UK by connecting them to female mentors and ambassadors as professional role models. I am a mentor on the Girls Network. It's been brilliant to coach young people through GCSEs and universities and choices and also to show people that it's great to be a lawyer or a doctor, but there are other jobs out there where you can make an impact. It's not just about digital and tech careers. Anyone can be a mentor. It's really good to be a professional role model for girls who are from less advantaged communities. They're brilliant, so check them
1: out. Definitely will do. And hopefully our podcast series is also reaching some more people that we could inspire. Kamala, do you have any closing Beyonce comments? I feel like I should give you the space.
2: If you were going to recommend one album for our listeners to get into by Beyonce, which one would it be and why?
1: Oh, that
0: is a challenge. I like self-titles. I love that one. I think that's really where she found herself as an artist and she broke out of the pop R&B singer mould. Lemonade is also brilliant. I love Lemonade. I also love B-Day. I think B-Day's got some great songs. I think that underrated. Basically all of them then.
2: So many. It's hard to pick one, hey?
0: I've said all of them. Oh no. I failed at the challenge. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) no worries
2: it was an impossible challenge so well done for trying
1: (laughs) wicked well we've gone from data to diversity networks let's end on a high with Beyonce so Don, thank you so much for chatting with us
2: thank you thanks for having me thanks so much that was so much fun
1: What a brilliant episode and really more of a deep dive into some of the data challenges that we've talked about in previous episodes. Dawn was an excellent example of someone who has moved through that career space in a non-standard way that we've seen be quite common across data, digital and technology experts in that she didn't come from a data background, but found her way and ended up tacking towards this direction throughout the early part of her career and has really found something that she loves.
2: As someone who comes from a liberal arts background myself and has fallen into this work, I love it when you hear people who come from non-stereotypical backgrounds into technology. So that was a real standout for me. One of the good things about this podcast is that it shows that these kind of career paths are really open to people who may not even think that they would be eligible. And as you can see, I mean, Dawn has clearly absolutely thrived and has done some amazing work. So it was really cool to hear about her background.
1: It sounds like her new role at the Welcome Trust is going to be really interesting as well. And actually, since we recorded this episode, a couple of really big things have happened in that health and data space. She mentioned Matt Hancock being the Digital Minister for Health. And since we spoke to Don, the new NHS strategy has come out for modernising their technology and has been as far as I can tell, incredibly well received for a tech strategy in government that has really built on some of the previous learnings that the UK and other governments have found in working in this kind of space and overcoming some of the massive disasters that have happened, especially with health tech in the past. Just a few days ago, the news broke about DeepMind selling out and going back to their parent company, Google, and all of the data that they promised would not be sent back to Google and Google's products around people's personal health information. Exactly that has happened and people really feel like there's been a massive loss of trust. And I thought that was the perfect example of what Don spoke about in terms of ethics and tech and people not often putting the two things together and seeing how they're so intertwined.
2: It hit the nail on the head in terms of an example that we were sort of grasping towards in the interview. I liked how she talked about how There's a lot of responsibility put onto data scientists, and it's almost like we feel that they're magic and that they can make these ethical decisions by themselves. She talked about how there should be always a shared responsibility between data scientists and the other people in a cross-functional team to make those decisions, and how actually the responsibility for how this data is used falls on all of us.
1: Definitely. And it also really spoke to what we've often covered in this podcast around inclusion and why it's important to have teams that represent broader society. And Don was great at bringing out those examples of where, especially when you're dealing with data and the ethics space, that when you have teams that aren't representative they will naturally build in their own biases. And the only way to be able to cancel that out is to make sure that you do have diverse teams and that the people building the tools are tackling those issues by proxy of being representative themselves. Also led us into talking about some of the amazing community work that she's been doing with Where Are The Faces and with Afrotech Fest. Those are two initiatives that we've loved watching from afar and it feels like those are exactly the kinds of networks that we need to be building across the government and tech space.
2: The work that she talked about, Deborah, doing the Where Are The Faces campaign was really, really inspiring. Often in tech, people want to build diverse teams but feel like it's really difficult to find people from diverse backgrounds and it's really seeing those campaigns like Where Are The Faces and Afrotech that exposed that actually that's a bit of a misnomer and you have to just put in the work to try and find the people to build your team so that your products will be less biased. The excitement around that was really inspiring and as I said in the podcast, I would love to go to Afrotech. It looked really fun as well.
1: The other common theme that came out was when she was talking about the data literacy programme, which I thought is just an excellent example of a way of bridging the gap between what are perceived as technical and non-technical teams. That part about the language barrier, I don't think that's something that we often think about is that that can be as much about terminology and the way that we speak about things and understanding terms around things like data science being just as much of a blocker to teams working well together as a natural language and how if we're able to use things like the cheat sheet for language and do all of that myth-busting we can use the information to help us make better decisions, which is exactly what data and data science should be about.
2: A key theme that came out throughout a lot of her answers was the data part of data science isn't as hard as the cultural and people part. One of the challenges which I love that she brought out was that sharing data is often puts people in a vulnerable position There is a big fear that the data could be wrong or it could be lost. And I thought that it was really interesting that she alluded to the trust factor and showing a lot of humility when trying to share data and making sure that you work within people's cultures to make sure that that can actually happen.
1: Speaking of making things happen, give me your reflections on the Beyonce section.
2: One of my favourite parts of any interview ever. when we were doing the research I had to really hold back from putting in about five Beyonce questions but I think we got there I liked how she talked about how Beyonce is an amazing role model and how her self-titled album is one of the best obviously being in New Zealand I was incredibly jealous that she got to see her recently when touring with her sidekick (laughs) Jay-Z that was great and just really fun to have that
1: chat I was very impressed that she managed to bring it back to the theme of the episode and talk about how Beyonce helps people to collaborate across boundaries. <laughs> Bay Data, we ended up calling it. <laughs> yeah. If we could weave some sort of Beyonce reference into every single episode, that would be wicked. Yeah,
2: that would be awesome. I love how like Dawn's still trying to recruit Beyonce into data science, even now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, amazing. And that's it from the One Team Gov show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen, and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast, and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.